There's a famous Jim Carrey movie from the 90s in which two friends travel across country to return a briefcase. Now, after many setbacks and after almost dying in the freezing cold of Colorado, the two come to blows. And finally, that briefcase is knocked over and $5 million spills out. So they got to decide what to do. They don't have money for lodging, so they decide to use this money. And they say, we'll keep IOUs. Every penny that we spend, we'll keep track of in IOUs. We're good for it. So the two go out and they pay for lodging in the fanciest hotel in Aspen. And better yet, they pay and they tip in $100 bills. They buy ski passes, they buy skis, and they even buy a Lamborghini. But it's okay, they remember every penny they've spent with IOUs. They're good for it. Well, personally, I don't think Dumb and Dumber are actually good to pay back their IOUs. Now, unlike Jim Carrey's character, God doesn't write meaningless IOUs. Our sovereign God is good for his promises. In fact, he's all-powerful and in control of all. That brings us to the title of this sermon, God, the Sovereign Promise Keeper. If God makes a promise, it will be kept. So today we're going to work rather quickly through 1 Samuel chapter 23 through 24, and you're going to see that this is really a central theme, that God keeps his promises and personally ensures they come about. Now, don't worry, I'm not going to read to you three chapters. Instead, we're going to focus on three scenes, uh, and from those scenes, three small sections. I need to teach youth group at six, and we need to get out before then. So we come to scene number one, our first passage, 1 Samuel 22, 1 through 5. Follow along on screen or in your Bibles. This is the word of the Lord. And David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother stay with you, till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed, and he went into the forest of Hirth. Now David in this passage is alone, and he's on the run from Saul. And we've already seen that David is anointed, but he's not yet king of Israel. In fact, Saul is still king at this point, and he's jealous of David. He wants David dead. But God's going to keep his promise to make David king of Israel. Now in this passage, our first passage, we see that there are two ways that God is an all-powerful promise keeper. First, he provides for David And second, he challenges David and develops him into a person who could be the king of Israel. So firstly, God provides for David. David was alone and an outcast, and yet God goes beyond simply his promise to make him king, but he gives him company. God begins by comforting David and taking away his loneliness 
by giving him his family. Now, if you've ever read a book with a hero or a villain, you might see that there's something even more important going on here, or something deeper to this. You know, a superhero keeps a special identity, a secret identity, so that people don't know about his loved ones, so that they can't harm them. Well, God here is making sure that David's family is out of harm's reach of Saul. He's going above and beyond his promise and keeping David's family safe as well. But God also provides for David by making a captive of over 400 men. So we go, David's lonely, and now he's got a family, and now he's got 400 men with him. God is providing for David. And not only is he now a leader of 400 men from the disenfranchised and the lowly, but now he has an organized protection against Saul. God is keeping his promise. Now David, the Lord's anointed, starts to see here the first glimpses of what it is to be a king, of what it is to be a leader. Isn't it interesting that God often gives us first glimpses of his promises? You know, many of the promises that God has given you and I seem to be all in the future. We might think, what is God doing now? But guys, God is living and active in our lives currently. Look for the glimpses of those promises now. Ask yourself, how has God already helped me overcome sin and worldliness in my life already? Check your lives, Christians, and see that God is living and active. So back to our scene. First, God provides for David. But secondly, God challenges David. The prophet Gad tells David in verse 5, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. Wait a minute. Don't remain in the stronghold? There's a reason why strongholds are called strongholds. They're, they're strong and they protect you. But instead, David is being called out of the stronghold and actually back into Judah where Saul is where Saul would hunt him down yet again. Now, it might sound crazy, but this seemingly suicidal command, that God, in this suicidal command, God is fulfilling his promise to David. He's bettering David. He's making David a king. He's teaching David. And some of these lessons include that an Israelite king stays with his people through thick or thin, an Israelite king doesn't make treaties with foreign nations, and David has been relying on Moab and the Philistines for protection. But most importantly, a proper king of Israel relies on his Lord. David's going back into a war zone, and a zone where he is not welcome, but the Lord will be his refuge. So in this action of calling David back to Judah, the Lord is assuring that David will be a righteous king, one that remains king, unlike Saul, who was not under God and was kicked out of his kingship. So again, God is going above and beyond his promise to David. God is ensuring that he remains king. Now, we're not going to focus on the rest of chapter 22. We've got to go quite quickly. Uh, suffice to say, Saul massacres the priests of the Lord. It's a horrible scene. And because he believes one priest has disobeyed him and has, has acted against him, he declares that all the priests of his family will be massacred. And it happens, and only one priest remains, and that priest goes to David. 
So we see even in this horrible act, God is providing David a priest. He has a prophet, a priest, and a people now. So now we come to chapter 23, verse 1 through 5. Follow along on screen or in your own Bibles as I read this section. Now David, now they told David, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But David's men said to him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more if we go to Keilah against the army of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord again, and the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Keilah, and I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Keilah, and fought the Philistines, and brought away their livestock, and struck them down with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. Now at the start of this section, the Philistines are plundering Keilah, an Israelite city near the Philistines' capital. But what's David's first response? To inquire of the Lord as whether or not he should go and defend the people of his own. Now why would he even have this idea with only 400 men to battle the people of the Philistines who are so much stronger than him? Well, David is feeling conviction. I had a roommate in college who was a volunteer fireman he was a first responder, and I know we have many first responders in this room today, and I, I thank you for what you do for us. Uh, but he was a volunteer fireman, and when he got a call, no matter what he was doing, he would drop whatever it was, whether he was in class or whether he was up studying for an exam, didn't matter. He would respond to the crisis. He would go, and he would save lives. David knew he had to respond to this crisis for the same reason my roommate did, he was called on. He knew he was the deliverer of Israel, and he knew that he was called to be Israel's defender. He had a conscience that was telling him to go. And similarly, in Romans 14, you and I are called to listen to our consciences. In fact, it's a sin if we disobey our consciences since we have the Holy Spirit in us. David had to respond because he knew it was the right thing to do, because his conscience was telling him to. To not respond would have been sinful. So David called on the Lord. And here we see another aspect of David. We see that David had confidence in his God, that he would deliver God, I'm sorry, that he would deliver the Philistines into David's hand. He had confidence in the Lord's promise. David's men, however, didn't have this appropriate trust in the Lord's promises. In fact, they had received a direct revelation from the Lord that said that they would win, but they were too afraid to go into battle. Maybe they considered, we'll be fighting a two-front war, maybe the Philistines on one side, and then once we get in Judah, Saul on the other, because we'll reveal our position. Whatever the, the reason behind it, it seems like this fear even spread to David because he inquires of the Lord for a second time. Folks, don't spread fear among the people of God 
We have a Savior. Now, I'm sure many of you have been watching Facebook during this election year, and there seems to be a lot of fear for our country and maybe even Christians in this country. Whatever happens, have hope in something greater. Don't listen to worldly wisdom. I'm not saying politics are not important, but I am saying Jesus is sufficient hope for a lifetime and beyond. So David inquires of the Lord, and he receives this response. Go to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. Notice here that the Lord pictures himself as the deliverer in this statement. I will give the Philistines into your hand. In fact, throughout history, God raises up deliverers. But God is always the ultimate deliverer behind those situations. And that's why the incarnation of Jesus is so fantastic, because we get to see Jesus in person, God in the flesh, acting as deliverer. And he's coming back to do that soon again. See, God is acting supernaturally to deliver the Philistines into, into David's hand. God can be trusted because he is in control of the outcome. So big picture from this second scene, what I want you to see is God can be trusted to keep his promises because he is in control of the outcome. Now we're going to skip basically the rest of chapter 23, uh, but I want to focus on on one verse here. Throughout chapter 23, uh, Saul is pursuing David. And in verse 14, we get this amazing statement uh, David, I'm sorry, Saul sought him every day. That's David. Saul sought David every day, but God did not give him into his hand. Saul has this amazing, huge army, but God does not let David fall into the hands of Saul. Even when David and Saul are on the opposite sides of the same hill, with Saul with his giant army and David on the other, and it seems like David is doomed, God providentially makes it so that the Philistines attack Israel, and Saul has to respond to that crisis, and David is saved. God providentially protects David. So now we come to chapter 24. This is our final scene of this sermon. And Saul has dealt with the Philistine threat at this point, and he's back on track of his main objective, which is to find and kill his adversary, David. And Saul chooses 3,000 choice men. These are the cream of the crop of Israel's warriors to come out and to find and kill David and his men. And it's five to one odds. David only has 600 men, and these men are taken from the distressed and the downtrodden. In a fair fight, Saul would win every single time. But David has God on his side. And God would make sure that in his infinite power, he would keep his promise to David. In fact, the situation would be resolved without a single drop of bloodshed. So Saul's army stops. And the king has to go into a cave to relieve himself. Comical, I know. Uh, And he, I could spend a few minutes talking about the Israel practice of, of going to the bathroom... Uh, but I'm not going to do that now. It's, it's written, much is written in commentaries. But suffice to say, Saul is occupied. Now, little does Saul know 
that the, cha- the cave that he's chosen to follow the call of the wild in is the very same cave that David and his men are currently hiding in. Coincidence? I don't think so. There are no coincidences with our sovereign Lord. In his power, he is delivering Saul into David's hand. Isn't that interesting? I I mentioned verse 14 earlier where God stopped David from being delivered into Saul's hand, but now God's going even further. He's giving Saul into David's hand. And David's men saw this as a great opportunity to rid themselves of Saul. But David only cut off a corner of Saul's robe. But even in this small action, David felt guilty because he knew Saul is the Lord's anointed. So he spared Saul out of respect for the Lord. So this is where we pick up chapter 24, verse 8. Folks, this is the climax of what we've been talking about since chapter 15. Saul's demise and David's rise. Follow along in your Bibles or on screen. Afterwards, David arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. And I said, I will not put out my hand against the Lord, my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt for my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients says, out of wickedness, out of the wicked come wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. And as soon as David finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. And he said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you dealt with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safely? So may the Lord renew you with good for what you have done to me this day. Now behold... I know you shall surely be king, and that Israel, the kingdom of Israel, shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. And Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. 
David does something pretty crazy here. He comes out of hiding. And rather than cursing Saul, he honors him. And rather than falling upon Saul with a sword, he falls down to the ground in homage. Now in this position, Saul could have easily killed David. In fact, Saul could have easily killed David and his men with his 3,000 select men. Now that David has revealed his position. They're backed in a corner in a cave. But David has confidence in his Lord. David had confidence that the Lord will keep his promise to make him king. Now then David starts laying out his case before Saul. He says, I could have killed you, and God delivered you into my hand, but you're the Lord's anointed. I'm not going to do that. And then he presents the material evidence. He points to the robe, the part of the robe that he split and he cut. And he says, I could have killed you. You know it. You were there. And then finally he comes to his conclusion, I have not committed treason. Even though you pursued me, I am righteous in this situation. And then finally, David gives pleas to the Lord. And he says, may the Lord judge and give sentence between you and me. And may he hold that verdict. May he plead or consider my cause. And finally, may he deliver me from you, Saul. So we see that David finally leaves the situation up to the Lord. It's all in the Lord's hand. And we see that David truly believes now that God is a promise keeper. And he's willing to put that to the test. Will God make him king? Will he protect God or David from Saul? And then here we come to probably the actual climax. And we're given the longest quotation of Saul in all of Scripture. That, that shows us something. It's got to be important. It's the longest quotation of Saul and it's, in fact, very important. It's Saul's confession. Now, we've heard one or two confessions of Saul in the past that didn't seem too genuine and self-serving. And this one, in a sense, is still a little bit self-serving, but it, it's the most genuine of his confessions, at least. And so here we get two aspects in Saul's confession. First, he finally acknowledges David. And second, he asks for David to spare his family. For the sake of time, we're just going to focus on that first one that Saul finally acknowledges David. This is an amazing thing. Saul hates David. He was pursuing him to kill him. But his hatred seems to fade here. And he throws away his pride, and Saul weeps. And he calls David by name instead of the son of Jesse, which he's been prone to do. And he calls David my son instead of son-in-law, which is how he's referred to him in the past. Then Saul does something amazing. He acknowledges that David was right, and he was wrong. But here's the real kicker. Here's probably the focus of this passage. Saul finally acknowledges that David will be king. And in this odd thing that Saul sometimes does, he puts on a prophetic hat for a second and declares that the kingdom will be established and it will come to full flourishing through David. Hard to say that word. Uh, so let's dwell on that fact for a second. Saul is giving David a kingly blessing. Would Saul have ever done this if it wasn't for the Lord? Saul would have never. The Lord is all-powerful, and the Lord brings Saul into that cave to tinkle 
so that he's put in a position where he must bless David. Providentially, God has not only protected David, God has ensured that Saul is brought to the point where he passes on the torch and he blesses the one he hated. Guess what, guys? Saul goes above and beyond. I'm sorry, David. Going back. God goes above and beyond his promises constantly. So can you see that this is the main central point of this passage? Can you see that God is a sovereign promise keeper? And God isn't just this way with David. God is a sovereign promise keeper with me and with you. In fact, God kept his promise that a Savior would come. And God will keep his promise that this Savior will come back. Even more so, let's just think about some of the promises that Christians are given. We can be sure of these. I'm just going to name a few. We can be sure that we do not have to worry and that God will provide for us. Matthew 6. We can be sure that God is working for the good of those whom he calls. Romans 8. We can be sure that we will endure hard times and that we must pick up our cross and follow God in persecution and maybe even death. Matthew 26. We can be sure that Christ bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to self and live to righteousness, that we can stand before our God. 1 Peter 2. We can be sure that Christians are given the Holy Spirit, a counselor to convict us, to guide us in the way of Christ, and to assure us. John 15. We can be sure of new birth, John 3. We can be sure from protection from Satan, Ephesians 6, our coming bodily resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15, and so much more. If that wasn't enough, let me give us one more. We can be sure that Christians have the promise of a new heavens and a new earth, a single place where the angels and us and the Trinity dwell, a renewed earth, untainted, without sin, where all pains and death and sorrow are wiped away, a place where the sheer glory of God will illuminate the earth, a place where the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit will dwell and walk in our mists, a promised land, Revelation 21 through 22. We can be sure of the promises of God. And for that, God deserves our devotion, our lives, our cries of thanks, and our praise. Let's pray. Father God, we give everything into your hands, Lord. We ask that you reassure us of your promises. Holy Spirit, dwell in us. Make us know that you tell us true things and that you do not lie. Father God, as we go throughout life, we believe and help our unbelief. Father, for those in this room who do not yet know you, we pray that you move in their lives, Lord, to know and to have this assurance and your promises, to know that you're good for them, that you're not writing meaningless IOUs. And Father, as we go about our daily lives, as we're distressed, as we're downtrodden, remind us of those promises. 
keep them at the forefront of our memories. Help us to, as we walk around, tell them to our children, tell them to our neighbors, tell them to our friends, and never stop speaking of the promises that you give us. Help our trust. Amen.